What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 194, What's 3 Billion Between Friends Edition? As President Trump says, coronavirus is no big deal and simultaneously cuts CDC funding because, hey, who needs scientists or facts? We are back to review some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, including the Wells Fargo DOJ settlement. Lawrence Hoskins has his FCPA counts on his guilty verdict overturned. Ethosphere's world's most ethical company awards for 2020 are out, and the news is even better this year than last year. We look at uh, some articles from Compliance Week who took a deep dive into coronavirus. We look at the New York Shield Act and ask, is your company ready? We have part two of Wow Moments in Compliance. What is cognitive diversity and why does it matter? Vera Sharapanova reports in the FCPA blog. Rick Mezik looks at the question of whether corruption will cost Equatorial Guinea its IMF bailout. I review the five blog posts on this week's 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, the final week of HR and compliance. I review uh, upcoming speaking events of March 10, where Conversant is hosting a roundtable in Houston, Texas. On March 12, I'm joining Conversant at the Innovation Forum in New York City. And on March 18th, I'm joining Baker Tilly at the Philadelphia chapter of the Institute of Internal Auditors for their 2020 Fraud and Ethics Symposium. I hope you can join me at one of these events. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 198, the week ending February 28, 2020, or I can't believe it's the end of February date, in the What's the $3 billion Between Friends edition. Jay, President Trump says coronavirus is no big deal, and in fact, we don't need the CDC, because who needs scientists or facts anyway? Uh, I'm out shopping for a breathing mask, but I wanted to take some time uh, in between to visit with you about some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So what say you? I say there is a plethora of exciting stories, and we could spend the whole episode on Wells Fargo. So why don't you give us a recap about what you and some of our friends in the technocrati have been thinking about with regard to Wells Fargo? So if you've been uh, visiting Mars this week and just flew back into town, uh, last Friday after we recorded our uh, episode 193, Wells Fargo Settlement was announced. It was a $3 billion, that's with a B, settlement with the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, basically around the fraudulent account scandal. We link to a plethora, as Jay Rosen has noted, note big word from Chowderhead, a plethora of uh, compliance stories, or rather stories from compliance practitioners 
Um, I wrote about it. Matt Kelly wrote about it. Mike Volkoff wrote about it. Some lawyers from Paul Weiss wrote about it. Uh, we each, of course, took a little bit different uh, angle on it. But this, Jay, was uh, uh, the Department of Justice's DPA really laid out in the statement of facts a nearly 20-year uh, illegal illegal scheme and fraudulent scheme where um, Wells Fargo used a made-up metric called the cross-selling metric uh, to defraud uh, the investing public that they were actually doing much better than they were. So that's what got them uh, the SEC $500,000 fine. On the uh, DOJ side, uh, they uh, took uh, criminal uh, guilty pleas for two actions— uh, one was creation of uh, false bank records, and the other was around violations of the Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery and Enforcement Act of 1989. Uh, so, uh, and then, of course, identity theft. So, uh, lots to parse in there. The um, uh, findings, or rather, uh, some of the statements uh, in the um, deferred prosecution agreement, I thought were were just chilling. One of the ones that really struck me was that uh, Wells Fargo senior management, that included the corporate headquarters and the board of directors, uh, tolerated illegal and fraudulent sales practices as an acceptable side effect of the community bank's profitable sales model. So um, you, here you have one of the largest banks in the world uh, tolerating as a side effect illegal and ethical conduct. I think that's about the most damning thing I saw. Matt Kelly took a look at uh, the failure of the board of directors to ask the, the hard questions until after uh, the Los Angeles Times basically broke the story in 2013, and thereafter, the bank still didn't um, really do anything. It may have been because senior management at Wells Fargo was lying to them, so it really speaks to the quality of the people you have in place there. On the um, uh, Mike Volkoff uh, took a look at the dysfunction in the cross-selling strategy leading to the cross-selling metric and how Wells Fargo put just insane pressure um, on your on their employees, literally um, threatening to send one employee who didn't make his numbers to a branch bank where someone had been murdered. And if you think of the old Jack Benny routine, your money or your life, uh, here it was lie, steet, and chill, or perhaps your life. And it came down to that for many employees. And then the... Um, Paul Weiss lawyers took a look at uh, why the Department of Justice was so uh, aggressive in this, basically, uh, as the Paul Weiss lawyers noted, settling uh, via criminal action things that had been typically handled civilly in the past. And they said that uh, the Department of Justice is showing willingness in at least circumstances it judges su sufficiently serious and unique to pursue criminal resolutions for conduct that's normally been treated civilly, civilly under the rubric of consumer protection violations. So uh, a very harsh settlement. If you think about everything Wells Fargo has gone through, $185 million fine in the CFPB in uh, 2016. Now we got $3 billion on top of this. Their legal cost for investigations and remediation uh, are somewhere north of $2 billion. They had a $7.5 billion market cap loss. They are growth constrained, so they can't really grow anymore, uh, or at least until they get through the uh, DPA. That's an OCC order 
So total cost here, Jay, uh, I think are going to be north of uh, 10, perhaps as high as $15 billion to Wells Fargo for something that uh, was is not a gap metric, something they made up. And actually, the total profitability of the fraudulent account scandal was uh, a paltry $400,000. But it really speaks to the toxic, broken culture of Wells Fargo. And in fact, my last uh, blog post was entitled, Why Would Anybody Do Business with Wells Fargo Again? Um, So Wells Fargo has a long way to go to uh, dig themselves out of this. Their reputation is still in uh, tatters. They've recently hired a new CEO. It's their third one since the financial or the fraudulent account scandal broke, and they have potential uh, criminal, individual criminal prosecutions of uh, the leader of the consumer bank who came up with this illegal fraudulent scheme, uh, Kerry Tolstat. So, um, you know, perhaps we'll have additional follow-ons on this. But this is uh, truly one of the greatest uh, ethical failures that we've seen, I would say, since Enron and WorldCom. I would agree. So. Uh... Next up, we have the first of two stories coming to us from the FCPA blog. Uh, Founder Dick Kasson reports on the Hoskins acquittal on FCPA counts. And I know this was surprising, first of all, uh, when Hoskins was convicted because uh, it really appeared that the government had not set up the facts to say why somebody who did not work in the U.S. and was not a U.S. employee could be found to be an agent of Alston. And uh, everyone was debating the agency theory. So now, uh, as of this Wednesday, a federal judge partially acquitted the former Alstom executive convicted by a federal jury in November of bribing officials in Indonesia, ruling that prosecutors had failed to prove that he violated the FCPA by acting as an agent of Alstom's Connecticut subsidiary. Judge Janet Bond Archerton acquitted Lawrence Hoskins on seven FCPA-related counts, but she let the four money laundering counts stay. Uh, Hoskins, as we've said, uh, is a UK citizen, and he was convicted by Connecticut. And uh, basically, the judge said that the jury's guilty verdict on all counts was against the weight of evidence adduced at the trial. In the trial in November, prosecutors convinced the jury that although Hoskins worked for Alstom's parent company in France and never traveled to the United States, he violated the FCPA by acting as an agent. Prosecutors said that Hoskins played the role in hiring two consultants who bribed Indonesian officials, including a member of the parliament. But the judge said prosecutors hadn't demonstrated that the Connecticut subsidiary exercised, quote, control over Mr. Hoskins' ask. Hoskins' actions sufficient to demonstrating agency. Alstom, S.A., pleaded guilty in December of 2014 to violating the FCPA by bribing officials in Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the Bahamas. For that, the company paid $772 million in criminal penalties. Alstom's consortium partner in Indonesia was Marabini, Corporation, and they pleaded guilty in 2014 to one count of conspiracy. Uh, Incidentally, or interesting, more interestingly, DOJ unsealed an indictment against three former Indonesia-based executives, two from Alstom and one from Marubini, for their alleged roles in the Indonesian bribery. The three defendants were all charged with substantive violations of FCPA. 
In earlier rulings, the judge had dismissed part of the indictment against Hoskins. She said a non-U.S. citizen, national, or resident could not be held criminally liable for conspiring to violate or aiding and abetting a violation of the FCPA. In Wednesday's order, Judge Atherton did not set a date for sentencing on Hoskins for his money laundering charges. So uh, I know when we saw the uh, headline come out over... Uh, over email uh, a couple days ago, we were kind of shocked by it. Tom, any uh, any icing you want to throw on the cake here? Yeah, Jay, through the uh, very uh, uh, courteous auspices of Fry Wernick, Wernick, rather, he sent me a copy of the uh, court's order, which I've been able to read. And the court focused on the facts around the agency of Hoskins. And the court found the specific reason they overturned the verdict was that uh, the requirements for agencies basically doesn't have to be a corporate structure in place, but what there has to be is actual control and direction of the agent. You can theoretically have someone above you in the corporate hierarchy be your agent for a specific project or specific purpose. But what, uh, and, and then the, uh, the agent has to actually uh, have uh, uh, not only the delegated authority, but exercise that delegated authority. What the court found that Hoskins was certainly involved in this, but he wasn't the person who selected the agent. He was just there to approve the contracts for the agent. So uh, there wasn't the sufficient control or actions by Hoskins to, uh, uh, in his role around the agents, simply helping someone out is not uh, does not meet the uh, definition of an agent. Uh, and the cor uh, court found that uh, Hoskins uh, worked in a different department than the business unit which hired the agent, which was the American business unit of all of, of Alstom. So um, it was a very uh, narrowly defined uh, reversal based upon the facts adduced at trial. And uh, I thought the court's analysis, it leaves open uh, the opportunity for the Department of Justice to bring charges along these agency theory lines going forward. But it demonstrates that you have to show that the uh, principal actually directed the agent, didn't simply ask for help, and the agent kind of out of a uh, just being a good corporate employee uh, giving that help. So... Um, the court also, the way they structured their reversal, said that uh, if the DOJ went up and won on appeal, that they could retry the case. What the court did not do, Jay, was overturn the money laundering allegation. So uh, Hoskins is still on the hook for money laundering, um, even though he was not in the United States. So uh, he still uh, will be sentenced based upon that. So, Tom, it's uh, February, and around this time is uh, when the folks at Ethisphere uh, give out their designation to the 2020 world's most ethical companies. Uh, in the show notes, we've listed, we've linked to both the uh, press release and the entire list of honorees. Uh, any thoughts about the process and those who made the list again this year? So, Jay, just a couple of things I'd like to highlight. Uh, first of all, with uh, obviously the um, ethical premium is the signature kind of takeaway from the world's most ethical uh, company honorees. And this year, the uh, Ethisphere's research support, supported the conclusion that not only ethics 
and financial performance go hand in hand. But the Ethisphere annual tracking of how stock prices of publicly traded honorees compared to the large cap index found that in uh, the listed 2020 companies outperformed the large cap sector over five years by 13.5%. So the ethics premium forms the basis upon which the companies can correlate responsible behavior with shareholder value. Last year, that number was 10.5%. So we had a three percentage point increase. And even more stunningly to me, Jay, I've been following this number for about 10 years. And 10 years ago, that delta was 4%. So now we've had the increase in uh, world's most ethical companies outperforming the large cap sector by um, three times what it was 10 years ago, and even going up from last year. So uh, good compliance and ethics is good for business, Jay. Here, here. So uh, next up, uh, our friends at Compliance Week are taking a real deep dive into the coronavirus situation. Uh, first off, Aaron Nicodemus talks about disruptions caused by the coronavirus affecting global supply chains. Next, Jacqueline Jager joins us with two looks. First, the SEC taking a look at the potential impact of the coronavirus on audit quality. And finally, Jacqueline looks at the coronavirus's impact on how tech medical retail industries are responding. Quarantines and forced business shutdowns are devastating China's economy. 90% of all affected provinces' businesses have been negatively impacted, according to a white paper called Business Impact of the Coronavirus, published by Dun & Bradstreet earlier this month. Those disruptions are beginning to affect the global supply chain. The white paper found that 163 of Fortune 1000 companies, almost all of them headquartered in the U.S., have one or more direct or tier one suppliers in the impacted region. And nearly all of the Fortune 1000 companies, uh, 938, have a tier two supplier. Apple and Carnival Corp are among American corporations that have outlined the financial impacts of the coronavirus uh, outbreak. What can companies do to address these problems? It's impossible to build a process that eliminates disruptions, says Brian Alster, general manager and third-party risk of third-party risk and compliance at Dun & Bradstreet. But there are ways to reduce it so it doesn't impact your company's performance. First, have good onboarding of third-party suppliers should take into account risks associated not just with their finances and operations, but with the unique risk presented by the company, they, the country they operate in, e.g. China. Businesses also need to look beyond the risk posed by primary and secondary suppliers and adequately assess risk posed by suppliers of suppliers to their suppliers. And lastly, companies should identify critical components in their supply chain and consider sourcing these components from more than one part of the world. He said businesses should seek alternatives while times are good and not wait for disruptions such as this. In Jacqueline's look at the SEC, um, the SEC and the Public Accounting, Accounting Overboards Oversight Board, PCAOB, issued a joint statement on Wednesday providing an update on recent conversations with audit, audit firm leaders regarding audit quality oversight challenges in China, including the potential impact of the coronavirus. The SEC and the PCAOB have been trying for years to gain greater access to Chinese-based companies and auditors whose work is relied upon by U.S. investors. Uh, 
Auditing firms have been asked to discuss audit quality across their global networks and challenges faced in public companies with operations in emerging markets, including China. Uh, PCAOB China challenges. Among the issues discussed during the December 2019 meetings is that PCAOB continues to be prevented from inspecting audit work and practices of PCAOB registered firms in China. Over the last two weeks, SEC and PCAOB staff have reconvened with senior leaders of the four largest U.S. audit firms to discuss efforts addressing various issues. Uh, Issuers plan and respond to the events as they unfold can be material to an investment decision and both uh, and Jay Clayton urges issuers to work with their audit committees and auditors to ensure that financial reporting, auditing and review process are as robust as practicable in light of the circumstances in meeting these requirements. Finally, Jacqueline looks at the uh, coronavirus impact and a recent analysis conducted by FactSet finds that among 364 of the S&P 500 companies that conducted fourth quarter earnings conference calls from January 1st through this past February, 138 or 38% mentioned coronavirus during the call. Among 11 total sectors analyzed, the highest number of companies that discussed the coronavirus included industrials at 26, information technology at 26, and healthcare companies at 24 sectors. Of earning calls analyzed by Compliance Week, all executives stress the health of their employees, business partners, and customers take paramount priority over worries about business continuity and recovery. Still, from a business impact standpoint, this has meant the temporary shutting down of factories and closing of storefronts, restaurants, offices, and more in affected reasons. Delays in production and product delivery, capacity challenges, and industry-wide port congestion are just a few of the risk management hurdles companies are going to have to overcome. Tech giant Apple, for example, announced on February 17th that it does not expect to meet revenue guidance provided in March due to two main factors, iPhone supply shortages and reduced product demand in China. In the hospitality industry, Hilton Worldwide has also closed roughly 150 of its hotels in China uh, to date, totaling approximately 33,000 rooms. Also, Wynn Resorts, that also operates in Asia, ceased its casino operations in Macau on February 5th. And during this time, the casino is closed. Operating since burn rate is roughly $2.4 million to $2.6 million per day. Government-required factory shutdowns in China are also impacting manufacturing for several companies. Hyundai Motor Corporation, for example, on February 7th, announced a work stoppage related to the manufacturing of its vehicles. Uh, there may be a silver lining here. Companies that will most efficiently be able to weather the storm are those that can realize business opportunities caused by forces of market change. They specifically point to the Alibaba group, who noted that more employees are choosing to work from home and that consumers are migrating to online purchase solutions so they can buy groceries and other daily necessities, uh, precluding them from having to go out in public. The experiences that we've had with situ similar situations like these in the past show that after a period of disturbance, consumption resumed stronger before. These are the remarks of L'Oreal Chairman and CEO 
Paljana Gan, who said in the February 6 earning calls, therefore at this stage and assuming that the epidemic follows a similar pattern, we are confident in our capacity this year again to outperform the beauty market and achieve another year of growth, both sales and profits. So um, a real deep look and as we said, uh, we link to uh, all three of those articles in the show notes. Tom, uh, next up, New York State Shield Act is coming into effect shortly. Uh, how do you know if your company is ready? So, Jay, the Shield Act puts in place two significant changes to enhance data protection uh, for data privacy. First, it expands New York's breach notification requirement in several ways. And second is the new requirements that companies uh, develop laws, implement and maintain reasonable safeguards to protect the security, confidentiality and integrity of private information. Uh, there's three basic categories, administrative safeguards. Do you have someone in charge? Is that person uh, assessing internal and external data security risk? Are they doing training? Are they selecting vendors who have been properly vetted? And are they adjusting your cybersecurity program? Technical safeguards, do you basically have a technical uh, defense program in place? And of course, physical safeguards, never forget those. Uh, protecting against unauthorized access, to detecting and preventing against intrusions, and assessing the human uh, risk of information storage. The uh, author, uh, Matthew Levine, suggests taking a more proactive approach uh, going forward, and this law uh, is similar uh, or has some similarities to the CCPA, uh, but he expects it to be uh, vigorously enforced by the state of New York. So any company that's got uh, consumer or other private information of New York residents uh, in its um, data files, you really need to uh, take a look at this and be ready to implement what uh, measures the New York Shield Law requires going forward. Over the past week, I have concluded my one-month look at the role of HR in compliance on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. On Monday, I looked at Promotion to Encourage Compliance, Tuesday, Tone in the Middle of the Organization, Wednesday, Tone at the Bottom of an Organization, Thursday, I considered the gap analysis for HR, and today on Friday, I posed or gave 10 questions to pose HR. You should note that 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program now has its own iTunes channel. If you want to binge out and listen to the episodes, i leave uh, the site on the show notes. If you're going to be in Houston on March 10th, I hope you will join me as Conversant is hosting a roundtable from 12 to 2 at Stake 48. Our featured speakers will be Philip Winterburn and myself and featured guests, Terry Springer from HP. We will focus on key KPIs for compliance. Information and registration is in the show notes. If you're going to be in New York City on March 12th, I hope you'll join me uh, once again with Conversant, who is hosting an innovation forum from 3.30 to 7 p.m. at Santina. The event will allow you to network with like-minded individuals within the ethics and compliance space and hear from both myself and Philip Winterburn as well. Louis Sapperman uh, will be joining us and perhaps one or two more on a panel. And finally, if you're not in New York or Houston, how about Philadelphia? I hope you will join me on March 19th, uh, excuse me, March 20th, uh, for the Baker Tilly and Philadelphia chapter of the Institute of an Eternal Auditor's 2020 Fraud and Ethics Symposium. Once again, information and registration is in the show notes. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we consider some of next week's top compliance and ethics stories. 
This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. If you have never done so, I would ask as a call to action that you tell one person about this podcast. I'm trying to see if I can grow the size of this podcast organically by asking people who enjoy it to recommend it to a fellow compliance officer, business practitioner, or someone else. Once again, I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.